and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast, where every week we explore different stories around water that include safe water projects, trends in the water space, and blue mind. We hope you enjoy listening, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinking H2O podcast. In today's episode, we're going to sit down with Dean Hall, truly a remarkable human being, that will tell us about the tragic story of how he lost his wife, how he contracted cancer, and finally overcame cancer through swimming. We're going to dive into Blue Mind and ultimately how being on and around the water really helped empower him and how his new organization, Swimming in Miracles, is helping inspire people around the world. We hope you enjoy listening and take care. Today I'm honored to have Dean Hall with me, who is a one of many things, a swimming aficionado, a therapist, speaker, and just all around an incredible human being and really excited to dive into his story and learn more about his Blue Mind adventure. Dean, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Glad to have you. I didn't want to butcher the story because it is so remarkable as I <laughs> dove into it. I give us well, a little story context. Really, is kind of one butchered moment to another. So <laughs> if you did, it really just kind of fit. Well, I'd, I'd appreciate if you did the butchering here and, and told me, <laughs> gave our gave our listeners a little bit of context on sort of who you are, a little bit about your mission, and, and getting into swimming with miracles. I have been a therapist now for thirty years. Eight years ago, uh, just last week, my wife Mary was. She died of brain cancer only 52 days after she was diagnosed. And this was only 15 days before our 30th anniversary. I didn't, I kind of realized it before then, but I didn't fully realize how much of my adult identity and all my reason for living, and as uh, self help authors are so fond of saying now, my why was wrapped up in being her husband. But when she died, I was just kind of lost. And and the grief was so powerful and so dynamic that I just kind of dropped out of life for a couple of years. 2013, in August, I was dying of leukemia and lymphoma. I think the grief was so intense that it suppressed my immune system, which then allowed me to contract those diseases. And I was down to 159 pounds. I looked in the mirror. I didn't even recognize myself. There was a sad, pathetic, frail-looking human being. The largest thing on me at that time, Kevin, were my lymph nodes. I, I, my dad has always said I never was a pretty boy. But at that moment, <laughs> it was even worse than usual. And uh, it scared me because I'd never really been suicidal, but I had this thought as I looked at the guy in the mirror, you know, if I just let leukemia and lymphoma take me, it wouldn't be a bad way to go. No one would blame me. They wouldn't know I allowed it. And, And the shock and realization that I was willing to let go of my life, it was just overwhelming because my daughter was 21 this just beautiful, wonderful girl who just lost her mom. And I thought, I need to do anything I possibly can to stay alive for her. Well, as a therapist, I knew the power of purpose. If you give yourself passionately to something, it has almost uh, magical effects for bringing you back to life. I'd seen it happen in my practice time and time again, but I didn't care about anything. 
And so for weeks, I'm struggling to find a purpose. And then I run across an old journal from when I was in sixth grade, 12 years old, and it had a bucket list way before anybody made bucket lists. And I, I realized uh, as I'm reading through this, the one thing I've always wanted to do is swim the English Channel. So that's what I decided to do. And it didn't make sense. My doctor said, absolutely not. You, get even, you even get into a public pool, it could kill you. And I told him, well, what do you want me to do, die on, sitting on a couch? I'm not going to do that. And so I started swimming. And the first time I got in the pool was August 13th, 2013. It took me over an hour to do 11 laps uh, but I felt better, and I knew that I was going to be okay. And then in November, by November, I, I was swimming every day. All my numbers were going in the right direction. I had started gaining weight and looking like myself again. My lymph nodes were going down just a bit, and I started getting excited, and my head started to clear from this just what's called traumatic bereavement in the clinical world, and I thought, who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And in my case, it's not even a pretty picture. So I started asking myself, how could, how could I continue to have this impossible dream but make it more helpful to the world and to somebody besides just me? I didn't want this thing to live and die with me. And I grew up only blocks away from the Willamette River. The Willamette River is Oregon's kind of mother river. It goes from south to north, straight through the center of the state. It runs past and through our nation or our state's capital, and then through our state's biggest city, Portland. And so it's kind of uh, the river. And I found that no one had ever, it's 184 miles long, no one ever swum the entire length. And so I started getting excited about this thing because 187 miles sounded a lot harder than 21 to 23. And no one had ever done it, whereas, you know, scores of people do the channel every year. And it just sounded even more impossible. So that's what I decided to do. Wow. I mean, for, I don't know where to begin. First, I guess, with the notion of where your wife had just died, you've been diagnosed and battling leukemia, and you have these suicidal thoughts. And I guess one could say that maybe is, is about as close to rock bottom as you could, could get, but you you found this new purpose with, with swimming. And then you talked about that first time in August 13th where you swam, but in, you, you said you knew you were going to be okay. Like how how is how did you think you knew you were going to be okay, and why did you think that you know after swimming or what was it about that that swimming that maybe was that mental turning point for you that kind of allowed you to get back on the a positive track for you and your daughter and everyone around you? Yeah, well, it was. I've always been a real physical guy. I tell everybody I was raised by wolves. <laughs> My mom and dad both were mountain climbers spent my whole childhood in the Cascades, um, you know, when everybody else was watching Scooby-Doo marathons in fifth grade, I was climbing Mount Hood or another mountain in the Cascades, and I'd come back to school, and they'd say, well, what did you do? And I said, well, what did you do? Well, I watched a cartoon marathon. It was really boring. What did you do, Dean? 
I just climbed Mount Hood. Um, and so I just had this real wonderful opportunity. And then my dad uh, was a marathon runner and watched him run most of the world's major marathons. And so I was raised in a culture where you're extremely active and people here in Oregon were doing adventure sports way before anybody knew anything about adventure sports. And so being active and physical has always been kind of a, a family history. And so to, yeah, as pathetic as it sounds, doing 11 laps in over an hour shouldn't be a real test of endurance and, and mental strength. But when the doctors told me, you know, getting in a public pool could kill me, it, it was really an act of courage. And the fact that I did it, it just made me feel so much more like myself and connected to who I've always been. Whereas the three years before that, it was just nothing but tears and feeling powerless. Wow. And when you, you started progressing with swimming, you'd mentioned that your, your tests were getting positive and you were showing some positive results. But then at what point did you become or did the doctors ultimately say that you were cancer free? Not until after when I walked in on June 2nd, 2014, when I walked into the Willamette and started swimming, I was still an active cancer patient. And when I got out June 27th, the first blood test I took after, which was a couple months actually, there was no trace of my leukemia whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I go down to one of the world's experts down at University of California, San Diego, Dr. Juan Ario Castro, and he said that if he hadn't done the tests himself, he would have thought I'd been misdiagnosed because in his 30 years, he'd never seen a spontaneous remission of what the type of leukemia I had. I had chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, and that's never supposed to go away. That's remarkable. And, and thank you for sharing yeah. all that. And, and I mean, even just, just want to keep diving into some of these things with you. I mean, so you, the, sure. the, is the Willamette River, is that what you say it's called? In, in Willamette. Oregon? Willamette River. Sorry. Yeah, it, it rhymes with damn it. Damn it. <laughs> I swam the Willamette, damn it. Slam the Willamette, damn it. There you go. That should be a, that should be a t-shirt or a coffee cup if it isn't already. It, it actually should be, yeah. Hey, right. maybe this is, that's a good fundraising tool that we could use. There you go. There and you go. So when you were swimming the Willamette River, what was going through your head? And I guess what was the biggest obstacle you encounter? I mean, is there wildlife or was there, I mean, is there any sort of boat navigation you had to kind of navigate or what was the biggest obstacle and maybe what was maybe your, the most memorable part of that swim? Yeah, there were several obstacles. The Willamette River Keepers really partnered with me, with me on this and were just an invaluable resource. They put me together with two of the state's best river guides, old codgers, even older than me, that both of them, I found out later, had done scores of river rescues. Uh, one owl had saved over 100 people and in, in his career. And the reason they did that is the upper Willamette is pretty fast-flowing, and got a lot of log jams and whirlpools and switchbacks. And to swim through those successfully can be pretty hazardous. As a matter of fact, 
I found that even with the three-mile-an-hour current, if you get pressed up against the log, it creates thousands of pounds of pressure. You're not getting me off of it. And so it was kind of uh, literally a do-or-die situation. And there were there was more than one time where I'm coming up against and really being pushed by a switchback, and Lou and Al are just kind of like Forrest Gump. They're like, swim, Nate, swim! <laughs> you know, so... So uh, there were a couple of those hairy moments, but the biggest obstacle really was the first two weeks I was in the water. The water was in the 40s. The coldest was 42, and finally, after a couple of weeks, it went up into the 50s, and by the time we got up to 58 degrees, it felt like a bathtub, but I was having to get out about every 45 minutes because I was going into what's called deep core throttle hypothermia. You got to remember, being a cancer patient, I had no body fat. Even with the three mil wetsuit, trying to stay warm was nearly impossible. So I get out after swimming an hour and have to do jumping jacks to warm up, and then I get back in. <laughs> so wow. that was probably that was probably the biggest obstacle, and that and the mental part of it. After a you know the first couple days, it's it's just kind of like a fun ride, doing three to five marathons a day. But then by about day 10, and it's raining, and nobody cares, and I'm just out there doing this thing, it's really not that much fun anymore, a big shocker. And to to keep motivated and not quit was probably one of the biggest obstacles. But it's a really important one and was really important for my cancer recovery too. And how long did it end up taking you? 22 days. Wow. Most days I average right around 10 to 12 miles. And a marathon, you know, in a full Ironman, they're doing, what is it, 2.7 for the marathon. Yeah. And then my longest day was 14 miles. And then I had a couple short days of only like around three miles, which is still more in a marathon. So it's remarkable. Yeah. And, and so from that specific, that swim up the Willamette River. I, I'm really speechless in terms of the one, how long it took and how much you would do. But I, and I think that that mental battle you had of, should I stop? Can I do it? I'm too cold. You know, I'm a cancer patient. Should I give up? You know, what, what do you think that maybe someone else dealing with cancer or someone else that is afraid of taking that leap or someone that maybe is just impatient or just like gives up easily? What do you, what would you say to them as far as kind of that notion of never giving up? I think that's absolutely vital to every area of our lives. One of my, I developed a mantra for myself that is totally mine. And of course, since it's mine, I really like it. But I would repeat this in the pool all the time. And then I called 173 people in the media and different fundraisers. And out of those 174, guess how many would actually talk to me? Three. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually it was two, but okay. you're the closest anyone's ever gotten. I had like 80 hangups and immediately didn't even respond, just hung up when they heard I'm a cancer patient and I'm doing a swim and I'm going to swim the uh, Willamette for the first time. All of them were in Oregon and Oregonians typically are really nice people. So it's, it's not that. It just seems so crazy. And 
the mantra that I developed was the extraordinary becomes possible when you make it impossible to remain ordinary. The extraordinary becomes possible when you make it impossible to remain ordinary. So every day I would say, what would I ordinarily do? Well, I'm pretty depressed. I might binge watch Netflix today and skip the pool. And so I would do whatever I needed to do to make that event impossible. Didn't have a smartphone at the time, so there's no way I could watch Netflix on my phone. So I would get out of my duplex immediately before I had time to think, have my swim bag with me. And then I'd call my dad, you know, this, this tough guy, ultra marathoner, and I would tell him how many laps I was doing that day. And I knew that he would call to see if I checked. And he's a great guy, but I respect him so much that if I tell him I'm going to do something, for me, it's nearly impossible to lose face with him, the guy I respect most. And so I I was doing things to absolutely make it impossible to remain ordinary. And I've found with the people I've worked with since, especially those that are really going after their dreams, if they follow that simple rule, then it's not so black and white. It's a lot more easier to grab onto. You're not just, oh, am I doing this or am I giving up? No, you've got simple steps that almost anybody knows how to take to make it impossible to Uh, remain ordinary. I love it. And I think what I've heard too is you you really held yourself accountable. And I think when you can hold yourself accountable and keep yourself motivated, that absolutely can help push you through some of those times that, as you said, some of those days were pretty miserable, I'm sure, but you knew that it was part of your larger goal and that you just kept doing it because you have to keep taking it one step at a time if you're ultimately going to try and reach the goals that you set for yourself. Right. In March of 2014, I talked to the river keepers, got enough information. I knew that it was going to be cold. I knew that it was going to be hard. And I knew that I might be swimming injured. And so because you can't do that many marathons in a row and be human and not incur some kind of injury, usually. Luckily, I wasn't injured at all. As a matter of fact, one of the things I found is the intense cold kept my body real loose and kept the lactic acid away. And so I never even got sore, which was just a little crazy. But yeah, so once I realized that this is going to be long, it's going to be hard, it's going to be cold, and I might be swimming injured, I just accepted, you know, I'm sure you've heard of radical acceptance. I just accepted those facts as part of this journey. And then when they happened... You know, it's it's not brutal. I knew it was going to happen. It's almost kind of like when you call all those people, they get the interest. Or if, if you have low expectations and you're okay with people slamming the door in your face, you know, you get those small little wins. And that's those are all the little things you need right. to get you through some of those challenging times. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've had many, many of those times doing what you do. I mean, I just I have situations all the time where I'm, I'm, I'm usually like a, a one out of 50 hit rate when I reach out to people and maybe it's even one out of a hundred. But one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk, talks a lot about, you know, it's that one in ten thousand and you gotta do it ten thousand times right. you get that one hit. And that can be applied towards outreach. That can be applied towards just your daily routine. So many things. And so I think you've done a great job of show, putting that into perspective because 
you know, I think if a lot of people can wake up and maybe you can sort of complain about spilt milk or whatever it may be, but I think you've sort of shown that you can have a lot to complain about and you can sit there on the couch and complain about it and watch Netflix if you like, or you can yeah. allow your actions to match your ambitions and, and get up and, and do something that's not only good for yourself, but good for others. And, and I think now I'd kind of like to transition into the, the swimming sure. in miracles part as a, you, with your Instagram and your website. What are you doing with swimming in miracles today? And how is that something that is ultimately inspiring or helping other people around the world? Swimming in miracles is kind of a long story in how I got to even calling that. It's really not that much about swimming. It's more about Einstein's quote, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything's a miracle. And the first time I read that, I, being the deeply spiritual, wise person I am, blurted out a few profanities. But it's what I call a Velcro quote. It just stuck to my heart and mind. And a few days later, I realized, oh my gosh, number one, Einstein, it's probably a pretty good bet he's a little smarter than I am. And secondly, what would happen if I absolutely adopted that viewpoint, that lifestyle? And so I decided to give it a two-week trial run. And after just a couple days, I could notice that everything was changing about the way I was viewing life. And I could talk about that for hours, but that's really what started Swimming in Miracles. I believe there are so many miracles around us all the time, and we're just not looking for them. We're missing them. But if we look for them, there's so many around us every moment of every day that we're actually swimming in them. And so that's where that came from. Love it. I mean, yeah, even just the fact of being a human and being alive, I know is some ridiculous, like one in trillion some odds of just having a, a heart and 10 fingers, 10 toes. I mean, to be alive at this exactly. time, it truly is, is just a miracle. So, I mean, when you right. put it in that perspective, it can help. I can, you know, you can get through anything if you have that as your foundation. Exactly. And so what I'm doing currently is I'm doing a lot of speaking and a lot of podcasts to offer hope to folks that are maybe in a hopeless situation. And even if they're not in a hopeless situation, just a very challenging situation, they're trying to go after their dreams, they're hitting the ordinary setbacks, and we've become so pampered in America, and even around the world, but especially in America, we're not real, and me included, what I'd call stress-hardy. And so once you realize that very, very little is impossible in our lives and we are created to be much more limitless than we'd ever guess and you see an older broken down guy like me being able to do these things and i tell everybody the the reason my story is special and and women typically hate this when i say it the reason my story is special is because i am not i'm just an ordinary guy And if I can do these things, I truly, with all of my heart, believe anyone can. And so that's really my message and really what I'm trying to do. And then the second part of this is continuing to swim rivers, find ones that haven't been entirely 
swum in their length. And that's almost all of them. There are very few guys out there doing what I'm doing. The exception is Ross Edgley, who uh, just spent 157 days swimming 12 hours a day in the open ocean and just a couple days ago finished swimming around the entire British Isles. But I I will never be that guy. But uh, there are very few of us swimming ultramarathons in natural water. And so I'm doing that to bring awareness and not only raise money for cancer, but also trying to get swimmers back into natural water. It's so much more fun. You know, a lot of the reason people quit swimming is swimming in a pool, just swimming laps in a chlorine or saltwater tank is just incessantly boring. And once you get into a river or lake, there's so much that's happening that it's a thrill. And so that's the second part of Swimming in Miracles that I hope to really continue to make prosper. I love it. Just a, just a normal guy doing extraordinary stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I yeah. see you got a, a poster behind you. It's or a picture of, of it looks like an ocean oh. Ocean wave. Yeah, no, this is. I was an art teacher okay. uh, for twenty years, and one of the things that broke my heart is I I quit painting, quit drawing, and I started painting again. I didn't. Nobody usually even notices it. Uh, I just think it's cool to have in the background. And I started doing abstract for the first time, inspired by water and nature. I call it eco abstract. I love it. And so one of the things one of the things I hope to do in the future is swim these big rivers, take lots of pictures, lots of video, and then do these paintings and sell those as fundraisers as well. Love it. Well, we'd so, love to yeah. to help promote and, and try and sell some of those to the responsible community. Oh, yeah. But, but also, I mean, kind of just on that painting and, and that, it seems like obviously a lot of the stuff that responsible is involved with is safe water projects, as well as the blue mine projects that involved different cancer or PTSD patients that go kayaking or surfing or swimming. And the whole notion of the blue mine being why we're happier, healthier, more productive when we're on, in, near and around the water. And kind of looking at that photo behind you and, and kind of hearing your story around water, I'd love to, if you could just shine a little light on how you think Blue Mind and the, the psychological connection between humans and water as medicine plays a role into to your story and ultimately what listeners can take from that notion of Blue Mind. Yeah, the fascinating thing about that for me and as a part of my story is I started to read a lot about eco-psychology when it started to really bubble to the surface in the early 2000s. And I'd read a little bit, but when I stepped into the Willamette, I didn't know who Wallace J. Nichols was. I hadn't heard of the Blue Mind. And all I was doing was this thing to try to inspire other cancer patients. I had no regard for the long-lasting impact that being in the water 8 to 10 hours a day for 22 days would have on my life. Of course, like I've said, it it cured my cancer. But uh, when I stepped into the river, I couldn't say Mary's name without just crying. And I'd never had that little control in my whole life. I was, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so I was raised, guys don't cry. It's hogwash. We know that. But that's how I was raised. And 
And so I'd never really cried. And boy, I cried a lot into what I call Mama River. And I started having, after about day six, this almost symbiotic feeling relationship with the water and the river. And I felt like we were doing this thing together. And I'm not one of those typically, you know, I'm clinically trained, so I'm not one of those hippy-dippy kind of guys that I now think, by and large, isn't that thought is very scientifically supported. And so it helped me to grieve. It helped the trauma. And it, it just changed the way I look. It, it's funny. My guide boater, my lead guide boater, was my dad this badass that I'd always adored and always respected. And he, he at the time was 79 years old and he, he was a crusty ex Marine. And as I watched him, and again, I'd never read anything about the blue mind. As I watched him on the river, he softened and there were dynamic things that happened between us that changed our relationship and made it closer and, it was always pretty healthy, but it made it much more, dare I say, intimate. It was funny. By the time we got to more populated areas where there were boaters, this was probably about day 16, there were guys doing a lot of water skiing and jet skiing, and, and we were both offended. They were ripping up the river. They had no regard for where they were. We felt like it was disrespectful. And it shocked. We even, our next rest time, we sat on the banks and just laughed, you know, what's happened to us that we'd be this intimately connected with the water and the river that we'd be offended when people were using it for recreation in ways we'd done, you know? So it just changed everything. And and now I really believe the future of therapy, particularly for anxiety, depression, trauma, is going to have to be nature-based and one of the most efficient water-based. And so as I, I'm still a practicing therapist, I'm trying to move all of my practice that direction. Well, I will eventually need to come out and have a, a session with you because I am a strong believer in the, in the ecotherapy and the eco-psychology notion as well. And, 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 and I had a lot of these water feelings as well. And it was kind of... But once I found the book, it kind of, it made me feel, I don't want to say accepted and part of a community, but I knew there was something more to water and more so than just the fact that I work to bring safe water solutions to people, but also just of how it's something that my family spends a lot of time congregating around the water and we're able to have these really powerful conversations around the water. We're able to go in the boat and have amazing experiences on the water. And I think just there's because our body is made of water and the world's made of water, there's so many interesting dynamics within our relationship with water that we're still only attempting to understand. And I think we're now really right. diving into and, and, and having some really fact based science research about how effective water and some type of nature can be within dealing with anxiety, depression, trauma. And, you know, and I think that what you're doing is a perfect kind of, you're somewhat of a trailblazer in terms of how this is being put into action. And I'd hope that your message and other people continue to acknowledge and accept it. And and I'd hope that, and I am excited to to indulge in it myself. Oh, thank you, Kevin. And one of the practices, uh, if we want to 
go so far as to call me a trailblazer. I don't know that I accept that, but thank you. But my friends just call me crazy. The lymphoma wouldn't go away and it was getting worse. And my doctors wanted me to do chemo and radiation. I said, hey, let me run a six month experiment. And so I continue to this day, even though I'm now cancer free and have been for quite some time, but I spend every Thursday night up in the Mount Hood wilderness. I take my backpacking hammock. Usually I don't get out of work till eight or nine. And so I headlamp in, put up my backpacking hammock and just put it by the river. So I'm close to the water, breathe in all the good fresh air. And I started that May 15th, 2015. And by March, 2016, my lymphoma was gone. And all my friends thought it was just nuts that I would do this every week and continue to after I was cancer free. But I really think it's what we as humans, especially in urban settings, have to do to stay healthy, whole and balanced. And Boy, that's that's a message I really want to get out to your listeners. Find their way of getting out in nature routinely for substantial amounts of time. I love it. And yeah, and it doesn't need to be what you're doing. It doesn't need to be what I'm doing, but it's whatever whatever is <laughs> right, best right. for them. And I think that's an important thing Absolutely. where psychology and and improvement is based on yourself and the individual. And I think sometimes people have a hard time comparing themselves to really famous and strikingly good looking people on Instagram when it's like you said, we're right, just right. we're just some average dudes doing some extraordinary stuff trying to help people. And it's your story, yeah. not anyone else's story. Right, right. And uh I think I have a hard time believing anybody would look at my Instagram and say, Boy, that guy's strikingly good looking <laughs> but if if they do, I, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So to kind of wrap this up, if people wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about you, uh, what would be the best way to go about that? Probably right now. I'm just in love with Instagram. I, you know, being my generation, eschew social media and kind of dabbled a little bit in Facebook back in the day. Really didn't like it at all. I've only been on Instagram for five weeks. But I've met people like you. Uh, It's a totally different feel for me. I feel like I'm finally meeting the people I've been trying to meet through cancer societies and and connect with. And it's just not happened through those kinds of organizations. Even though they're wonderful people, it's just they're not set up for collaboration and connection. And boy, I've gotten to talk to Jay Nichols and have a couple nice conversations with Tim you, I met uh, several people in the UK that are swimmers and podcasters and, and just had this wonderful time. So Instagram, uh, I'm on it frequently and would love to have anybody DM me. My website, swimmingandmiracles.com. You can always get a hold of me through that and probably find out more about me than even my own mother knows, maybe. Love it. And kind of uh, to close it off here, I got my, my blue marble, which I'll, I'll send you one if you don't have one. But I, I remember your quote you said before we started was the, the Jacques Cousteau, protect what you love. I mean, this is something that very right. much grains everything we're doing here at Responsible. You know, and I think a lot of what you have accomplished, so I think we can, we can do some pretty cool stuff together to promote the, the amazing powers of water, collaboration, hard work, 
spirit, everything that you've embodied in, in yourself and everyone around you. And we're really excited to, to learn more, stay in touch, and, and do some more awesome stuff with you here in the future. Oh, thanks, Kevin. Uh, the chance just to get to talk to you has been uh, delightful, and I'm, I'm looking forward to collaborating with you. I'm really excited about that. Look forward to it. Thank you, Dean. Okay, thank you. Bye now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast. If you liked today's episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other social media at Responsible. And stay tuned for future episodes of the show. We'll see you next time on the Rethinking H2O podcast.